great to see you here at the EU public meeting. I hope uh, many of you had a good time last week at the EU's annual conference. Uh, it's great to see you back on campus as we re-engage with this book in the Christian New Testament, the book of Hebrews, which the EU has described as the sort of book of the year, which means that in lots of little chunks throughout the year, we come back to this book of Hebrews and we're gradually working our way through it over the course of the whole year. So we're spending the next three weeks looking at the next little section of the book of Hebrews. Then we'll do a bunch of other stuff in EU public means. We'll come back to it again after mid-sem break and we'll finish off the year with Hebrews as well. But I'm going to start you with a real question. You can see the outline up here on the board. The first question is, you need a... What? What do you need at the moment? Like, my guess is you, everybody needs something. There's something that you need at the moment. And I was very interested yesterday when I asked all those gathered at the public meeting what they needed. All sorts of different answers came out of different things people are in need of right now. What do you need? First thing that comes into your mind. What do you need at the moment? Call it out. Nice and loud so we can hear. Go on, call it out. A nap. You need a nap. Absolutely. Uni's been hard a whole what, two and a half days of semester, ready for some more holidays. You need a nap. Fair call. I think we all concur. Even those laughing at the moment. They're laughing with you because they've really identified a deep core. What else do you need at the moment? You need a what? You need, you need a... Maybe some lunch. Some lunch. Doesn't quite the grammar, but yeah, you need a something to eat because you're hungry. Yeah, right? You need something to eat? Well, yeah, okay, I can't, I can't help you. Do you want a mandarin? I've got a mandarin here. Oh, yeah, you have a mandarin there. Oh. What else? <laughs> what else do you need? What else do you need? Oh, my dear. What else do you need? One more. One more. You need a car to <laughs> go look under your seat. No. Um. Okay, so I'm going to suggest you something. I'm going to suggest you need something, and my guess is it might. It could come to you as a surprise. It could come to you as genuinely a shock, like a bit offensive, or it could come to you as very reasonable, depending on your background. I'm going to say to you, this is something you absolutely need. You need it today. You need a priest. You need a priest. And you need a priest today. Now, that might catch you as a little bit of a surprise because you think, well, if, if you're a Christian person, and many of those who come to EU public meetings call themselves Christians, you might say, well, I'm a Christian person. I believe what God's written here in the Christian Bible. Uh, surely I, I don't need a priest. Don't we believe in the priesthood of all believers? So we don't need priests anymore. That's, that's a bit of a surprise that I would say you need a priest and you need a priest today. It might actually be a bit offensive to you because, frankly, unless you've had your head sticking under a rock, you would know that there are many, many stories now about terrible earthly priests. Priests who have done what can only be described as evil and wicked things, taking advantage of defenceless and often the most needful people in society, including children, people have done terrible things. We don't need those priests, and I would agree with you, we don't need those priests. We need to get rid of those priests. But I am going to say to you, you still need a priest, but you need a good priest. You actually do need a good and godly priest. Now, you might come from a different faith background. Maybe you, you are not a Christian, you're a different religious person, and part of your religious experience is priests are part and parcel of that. And you might say, well, the fact that I need a priest, that's no big news. I, I know I need a priest. 
Or maybe you come from a Roman Catholic background and you're used to priests having a particular role and authority within your particular faith expression and you might say, yeah, I need a priest. I know, I've been told that all my life, I need a priest. Well, I want to say if you're in either of those two categories, I want to say to you, you do need a priest, but you need a different priest because none of those priests can actually be sufficient for you. They're not sufficient for you. So if you're relying on those priests, it's going to go bad. So you need a priest, is my claim today. And Jesus is the only priest you need. You need a priest, and Jesus is the priest you need. And you need him today. That's what I'm going to try to show to you today as we look at this next section of the book of Hebrews. But let me um, sort of explain why I think you need a priest. The reason I think you need a priest is because the one true living God, and the Christian Bible is very clear, there is only one true God, the one true living God, he is more holy than you imagine. And you are more sinful than you remember. That's why you need a priest. The one true living God is more holy than you imagine, and you are more sinful than you remember. Let me give you some examples. You can see I've written a few passages up there. We're going to do a little bit of flicking through our Bible. If you've got your Bible there, you could great if you could call it out. Pull it out and open it up, or maybe call it up on your phone. I just want to show you a few key verses to establish this point from the Christian Scriptures. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, which is not where we're up to yet in the book of Hebrews, but I'm just jumping ahead to something the writer says a bit later. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. He says there, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God. And notice what he says next. Let us worship God acceptably. How do you worship God acceptably? With reverence and awe. Now, we don't know who the author of Hebrews was. People have different speculations about who exactly who the author was. But we know the author was a Christian and we know that he's writing to Christians in the first century just the first couple of decades after Jesus died and was raised back to life again. He's a Christian writing to Christians. And he says we have to worship God acceptably. How do you do that? With reverence and awe. As Christians, you can't just wander into God's presence. You have to worship him with reverence and awe. And what's the reason he gives at the end of that verse? For our God is a consuming fire. Now, in my Bible, that's in the inverted commas there. God is a consuming fire. Because it's a quote from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Our God is a consuming fire. Let me give you an example of that from the Old Testament. You've got your Bible there. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Sadly, not a book of the Bible that Christians spend much time in as they try to understand God's Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. But Leviticus chapter 10 bit of context just to fill you in. Leviticus chapter 10, uh, just before this in chapter 9, the one true living God has instructed his old covenant people, the nation of Israel, how they should worship him with reverence and awe. And in particular, he set up a priesthood. He said, this is, I want Aaron to be my high priest and his son will be priest with him and set up this priesthood. And he's given instructions in chapter 9 about how they're to do that, how they're to be priests. And then you get, straight away, you get chapter 10. Chapter 10 is about Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. Do you know anyone called Nadab? Know anyone called Abihu? 
Yeah, well, this story is why. Okay, they don't do good. They don't do good here. So let's have a look what happens to them. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, remember, they've been made priests. Great privilege to be made priests by the one true living God. They took their censers. Censers were little things that they used to hold coals in, sort of had fire in it. They took their censers. They took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. That's not what they're meant to do. But they're just going, hey, we're now priests of the one true living God. That's cool. Special privilege position. Let's do some freestyle worship. Yeah, let's get our censer. Yeah, put it up. Put a little bit of incense in that. Yeah, we're going now. We're going now. And then we'll, of course, have... They added incense and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. We have to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You can't take liberties with the one true living God. As a Christian, this is who he is. Have a look at another verse that says a similar sort of thing. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, back to the New Testament, towards the end. Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, co-worker in the Gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 6, jumping in at verses 15 and 16. I'm going to jump in halfway through verse 15, because Paul here has been encouraging Timothy to... Stay faithful to the one true living God. Do the thing that has been given to do by God. And it, but he had, ends, ends with his description of who God is. Halfway through verse 15, he says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives, this is the interesting bit for our, our reason, who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. The one true living God lives in unapproachable light. Now, the idea that the one true living God is light and that Jesus has come as the light to the world, that's a common idea, but he lives in unapproachable light. You can't just want, you can't, you can't be like a little moth and go towards the flame. Because that will not go well for you. He dwells in unapproachable light. I'll give you some examples. Think about different examples again across the, across the Christian Bible. You remember Moses? Moses who boldly said to the one true God, show me your glory. And God says, I'll have my goodness pass in front of you, but you can't see my face. Not that the one true living God has an actual face like a human being, but you can't see my face. You can only see my back. In fact, he hides Moses in the rock. Because you can't, you can't just wander up to God. He dwells in unapproachable light. Or you think about Ezekiel, the prophet, who saw, he says, if you read Ezekiel, he says, I saw the likeness of the glory of the Lord, Yahweh. Just think about that. That's, he didn't see the Lord, no. He didn't see the glory of the Lord, no. He saw the likeness of the glory of the Lord. At least it's several steps removed, right, from the real deal. And what happened when he saw the likes of the glory of the Lord? I fell down on my face as though dead. The one true living God dwells in unapproachable light. Or Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees a vision of the one true living God. 
lofty, lifted up, who just the hem of whose robe filled the, the Jerusalem temple in this vision. He sees and he sees God and the angels calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And his response is, Woe to me, a sinner, for I have seen the Lord. Or think about John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 1 when he sees a vision of the resurrected Jesus. Now, John the Apostle spent three years walking around with Jesus, around Galilee and Jerusalem. He knew Jesus well. He was a friend of Jesus. But when he sees Jesus resurrected in glorious splendor, he sees Jesus, the Jesus whom he knows. And what does, what does he say? He says, I fell on my face as though dead. See, the one true living God is more holy than you imagine. And the reality is we are more sinful than we remember. Uh, give me a wave if you were at EU's annual conference last week. Yeah, great, fantastic. I mean, I'm sure you had, well, I hope you had a good time, but what I really hope under God is that you had a, a, an encouraging, edifying time in your faith in Jesus, in your walk with Jesus. Uh, and your know, annual conference is so wonderful. You know, five days together, spending all that time in God's Word together, great fellowship, singing God's praises together. It is a sort of a high point moment of you know, of the year for many of us. And you would sort of think that riding the momentum coming out of annual conference, you're the most pumped up to follow Jesus that you probably might get in the year. And so you're really keen to follow Jesus. Your holiness level is going to be through the roof at that particular point, right? Because you're just really on for Jesus. And So what happened on my household on Sunday? My wife, Jenny, and I, we had a big argument. Big argument. Why did we have a big argument? Yeah, it was emotionally tense. Well, not tense. It was you know, emotionally involved. Argument. You know what those arguments are like, and why do we have that argument? Well, at the end of the day, when you really sort of pull it all back, it's because I was being petty, impatient, and selfish. Actually, that's why it happened. Yay for annual conference. Do you know what I mean? We're more <laughs> sinful than we remember. <coughs> So, because God is more holy than you imagine and we're more sinful than we remember, that's why you need a priest. You need a priest today. Every time we fail, every time we just don't live up to God's hand, we need a priest. Because what does a priest do? A priest intercedes between us and the one true living God. You need a priest. Now, Jesus, turns out, is the priest you need. Now, this idea that God is more holy than we um, imagine and that we're more sinful than we remember, the Old Testament Israelites, they got this. The ones who knew God made sure that they got this. Well, they had no excuse for not getting it. How so? Well, because what the one true living God did was he set up a whole system. The priests were part of this system, but there were three components to the system. The system that he set up so that they could worship him acceptably was... It involved a space or a place, it involved a person, and it involved an act. A space, a person, and an act. The space was the tabernacle or the, the temple, where the one true living God symbolically came and dwelt amongst his people. The, the person was the priest, the priest who interceded on behalf of the people with the one true living God. 
The act was the sacrifice that the priest offered to atone for the sins of the people and render the people whole, clean. And so you have the space, the tabernacle, the person, the priest, and the act, the sacrifice. These, are the, these three things meant that you just couldn't escape it if you lived in Old Testament Israel. You just knew because of that whole system where you can't just wander up to God, you need the priest, and the whole temple system was graded so that depending on who you were and what had been going on in your life, you were only allowed certain access. And so therefore the whole system set up saying, God is more holy than you imagine and you're more sinful than you remember. The whole system communicated that very clearly to you. However, what happens when the one true living God comes amongst us, the person Jesus, and himself overturns that old system and establishes the new system in Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ has come, the temple is done away with. We don't need the temple anymore. We don't need the earthly priests anymore. We don't need the earthly sacrifices anymore. So as a Christian, you're not given that daily reminder of the fact that God is more holy than you imagine, you're more sinful than you imagine. You're not given the sort of concrete, tangible, kinesthetic reminder that the Old Testament Israelites had. And that can go in two ways then for you. It can mean two things. It can mean that you sort of become a bit presumptuous. You forget just how holy God is because you don't have the system to remind you. You, don't, you forget about how much our sins matter to God because you don't see the sacrifice. So that can affect us in that way. But the other way it can affect you is... If you sort of took a real comfort in that tangible system that existed and then that system is done away with and now it's just said, just trust Jesus, you could be a little bit uncertain about whether it's going to be as effective as the old system because that was very practical and tangible and had all those rules and regulations. So it affected a number of different ways. So what's happening here in this particular letter, the letter to the Hebrews, is there's a bunch of Christians that the writer's writing to who are Christians, they have faith in Jesus, but they used to be Jews. They used to be part of that Old Testament system. And have now come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and they put their faith in Jesus and become Christians. But the reality of life in that first century, and it's still the reality for many Christians around the world today, is that actually choosing to be a follower of Jesus means that you actually your life becomes, in an earthly sense, much harder you face a lot of persecution and opposition. And that was the case for these believers. They put their faith in Jesus, and now, frankly, their life was, was much harder. And they've been Christian for a while. They've been enduring persecution and opposition for quite a while. And after a while, you start to think, maybe I should just go back to Judaism. Because, frankly, oh, same God, isn't it? And, frankly, if I was a Jew, I wouldn't be copping all this flack that I get for being a Christian. Like, that makes my life really difficult. Maybe we should just go forget Jesus and just go back to what we had before. The writer to the Hebrews is writing to these Christians saying, don't do that. Don't let go of Jesus and go back to the old stuff because that old stuff was just a shadow of the reality and you only get the reality when you come to Jesus. So don't go back to it. So that's what he's writing to help communicate to them. Don't stick, don't give up. On Jesus. And then he makes three points. Remember how I said that the Old Testament system had three things? About a place, about a person, and an act. He makes some points about Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the priest, is the, is the better person. He's the reality. He's the real priest. 
whereas all those other priests were just shadows. He's the one who offers the real act, who does the real sacrifice. And he's the one who does that act, that sacrifice, in the real place, in the heavenly tabernacle, not the earthly temple. Those three things he says about Jesus are the three things we're going to look at over these three weeks. Because this middle section of the book of Hebrews, starting from in the middle of chapter 4 and going through to chapter 10, this big middle section of Hebrews is all about Jesus being the one who is the better person in the better place offering the better act. And he's making these point, these three points. So today we're just taking Jesus, the better priest. The better priest. That's what we're going to look at this week. Next week, Jesus is the one who does the better sacrifice. And the week after, Jesus is the one who does it in the better place, the heavenly temple. That's what we're looking at. Now, have a look then in your Bible. Uh, let me just point out some things to you here as we jump into Hebrews chapter 7. Notice, if you've got, it's easier if you've got a physical Bible in front of you, but you can do it with your phone. Flip back to chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5. Melchizedek is a key figure in the Old Testament who the writer of the Hebrews is going to make a few points about we're going to explore today. He introduces this idea. I'm just going to jump in there. It's mentioned in chapter 5, verse 6, but we'll jump in at chapter 5, verse 10. He's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus was designated by God to be high priest, right, the better person, the the better priest, in the order of Melchizedek. Notice his next sentence. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. You're being a bit thick, a bit dim. I've got lots to say about it. And then he goes on a bit of a rant, a bit of a long excursus about how they really should know better by now and he's been very patient with them and they need to stick to the truth that they've heard and be faithful to Jesus. He goes on this long excursus. He doesn't come back to what he was about to talk about, Melchizedek, until chapter 6, verse 20. He says, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He, and then he says the same thing again. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then he launches into the stuff he wants to say about Melchizedek after that long excursus. Now, he says, Jesus become this high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That is, the way the Old Testament priests worked was you couldn't just choose to be a priest. You got to be a priest by virtue of your family, what family you were born into. You had to be a descendant of Levi, ultimately coming from Aaron's line. You had to be a descendant of Levi. That is, if both your parents were Levites, then maybe you could end up being a, a, a priest from the, uh, from the family of Levi. It came by genealogy. That's what it would mean to be a, high, be a priest in the order of Aaron or of Levi. But Jesus is a different sort of priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is very odd. Melchizedek, really, if you were just reading your, the Old Testament, you would not think much about this dude, Melchizedek. He sort of has this tiny, you know, he's not like a, a Moses, so he's not like an Ezekiel or an Isaiah or a King David. He's this guy who has this little cameo, a couple of verses, that's it. He's only mentioned three times in the whole Bible. He's mentioned in Genesis 14. He's mentioned in Psalm 110, and then he's mentioned here in the book of Hebrews, particularly in chapter 7. That's it. But the writer of the Hebrews says, you want to understand what sort of priest Jesus is? Well, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And you go, what? 
Like, what's that about? Help me understand that a little bit. Uh, let's try to understand it a little bit, right? So you got your Bible there? Let's flip back to Genesis chapter 14. It doesn't take us very long to cover all the verses because he's not there very much. Genesis chapter 14. Bit of context here. Abraham, key figure, father of the Jewish nation. His nephew, Lot, has been taken off as a prisoner of war. A whole bunch of kings were fighting a whole bunch of other kings. Lot gets, and his family get carted off as um, prisoners of war. Abraham, the good uncle that he is, here's his nephew who's been ta- taken off as a prisoner of war. He, and so he gathers you know, a group of 317, I think it was, soldiers that he happened to have in his household. But, uh, I mean, that must be, you know, he doesn't have a lazy 317 soldiers lying around the backyard. Anyway, grabs him, off he goes, under God's hand, rescues Lot, brings him back. Okay? That's what's happened. Now, jump in at chapter 14, verse 17. Chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 17. After Abraham returned from defeating Ketelrama and the king's allied with him and the king of Sodom, came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Here we come to Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek, never met this guy before, king of Salem. Salem uh, was renamed Jerusalem later. It means peace, right? King of Jerusalem, Salem, comes out. He brings out bread and wine, presumably to refresh Abraham. He was priest of God's Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That is of all the spoils. And then the story goes on. That's it. Belchizedek, that's it. See what I mean? It's just like a little cameo. Abraham comes back, out comes Melchizedek, gives him some food to refresh him, and blesses him, blesses God for giving Abraham victory, and then Abraham gives him a tenth of all the spoils. Okay? Now, if you're just reading through Genesis and you didn't know the rest of the Bible, you would not think twice about it. You probably wouldn't even bother to sound out his name correctly. <laughs> right? You just go, oh, then Melchizedek, blah, 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 King of Salem, blah, blah. Right? Notice weird things here. There's weird things here. Who is this dude? He's priest of God Most High, but where does he come from? Who are his parents? When was he born? When did he die? Like, when this guy just appears. He's just there. Okay, turn to Psalm 110. So you've forgotten about Melchizedek by the time you got to Genesis 16. And you're reading on through the Old Testament, you come to Psalm 110. Psalm 110... You can see there, the very first thing it says is of David. Right? King David wrote this psalm. And it seems, seems that the psalm was probably written to celebrate the enthronement of a king, a king in Israel. And what it does is it celebrates how Yahweh, the Lord, is going to give victory to the king over the king's enemies. And then that's how, the, how it starts, verses 1 to 3, and, and that's how it ends in verses 5, 6 and 7. But then wedged in the middle in verse 4 is this... Look, it just seems a bit random, this verse, this thing that's said. It's all been about him being the ruler and the victor over the enemies. And then verse, verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You, the king, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We go, hang on, Melchizedek. I, oh, was that that dude back in... What? So David now has been understood. Remember, 
God, one true living God, made promises to King David. Someone from your descendants will be not just king of Israel, but the king forever in Israel. He will be the Christ, the Messiah, who will sit on God's throne forever. And so this psalm was taken as a promise, a prophecy, if you like, of the king, who, the great king who would come. That the one, the Messiah to come, wouldn't just be a king, he would be a priest, a priest forever, like Melchizedek. Now you think about Melchizedek, how is he a priest forever? Well, I, I, this is where I need you to just to, to be a bit, a bit, a, don't be an engineer, right, at this point, right? <laughs> I want you to read the Bible with a little bit of literary sense, right? When we read Genesis, the account of Melchizedek, notice Melchizedek, we're not told anything about, we're not told when he was born, we're not told how old he was, we're not told when he died, we're not told his parent was, he's just there. It's like in literary terms, literary terms, it's like he just lives forever. He's just this presence. He comes out, there he is. Now, Melchizedek was an actual dude, an actual person, right? He was king of Salem, Jerusalem. He had a mum and a dad. He was born on a particular day and he died on a particular day. Yeah, he was a real person. But taking Genesis, just reading it as, a, as literary history, Melchizedek is this figure who sort of, we know really he, he, he didn't live forever, but sort of lived in literature. It's sort of like he, he almost lives forever. And that is key because that sets up a shadow. It's not a reality. We know he didn't live forever. But it sets up a shadow of the one who would come as priest in the life of Melchizedek who actually does live forever. He's the reality. Well, Melchizedek's just the shadow, sort, sort of forever, like in that literary sense. And here in Psalm 100 says this promise that this Messiah to come will be a priest forever like Melchizedek. He'll be the reality to Melchizedek's shadow. And then you get, of course, the Lord Jesus comes as that Christ, the one at the centre of all of God's plans. And the writer to the Hebrews picks up on this point that Jesus is the one who fulfills Psalm 110 and he therefore is not just king, He's not just Christ, but he's also the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Have a look there at what he says. Hebrews chapter 7. You can see there at the beginning of the chapter, the writer just covers the first couple of things that are said in Genesis. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. We know that. We read the Genesis account. And then he makes five points. Five points basically trying to show how awesome Melchizedek is as a priest compared to the priests who come from Aaron's line, from the Levite priests, the priests who are there in the Old Testament temple. He's saying Melchizedek is a greater priest. How? First of all, he says in verse 2, Melchizedek's name shows that he was king. He was king in Salem, in Jerusalem, but the very name Melchizedek actually means king of righteousness. So this priest wasn't just a priest, he was a priest and king, which makes him better than just the Old Testament priests. Second thing he says, verse 3, this priest lives forever, right? Melchizedek lived forever in that literary sense. Verse 4, he says, Abraham gave him a tithe. Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils. 
and generally you give the tithe, you give the tenth or the spoils to the one who is more worthy, more honourable than you. So the great father of the Jewish nation, Abraham, paid Melchizedek, that's how great he was. He goes on then to say in verses 6 and 7 that Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. And normally he says the lesser is blessed by the greater, showing how great uh, uh, Melchizedek was. What's more, he says that earthly priests from the tribe of Levi were Abraham's descendants. And he says so it's sort of even like as Abraham pays the tithe to Melchizedek, it's sort of like all of his descendants have sort of paid that tithe to Melchizedek. So great is Melchizedek. So he's established that Melchizedek is a greater priest, greater type of priest than the Aaron priest or the Levi priest. Then he says, from verse 11 onwards, he says, and so Jesus, the one coming like Melchizedek, is greater than the Levi priest. So don't go back to those old Jewish ways. Stick with Jesus as your priest. He says the very fact that David makes this promise that there is going to be one to come, he says that shows that we needed a better priest. If we didn't need a better priest, David wouldn't have made the promise. He wouldn't have made the prophecy. Clearly there was a need for a better priest. He says there in um, verse um, 15 and 16, whereas the, the earthly priests, how did they become priests? On the basis of their genealogy. What's the deal with Melchizedek? We don't know anything about his genealogy. What's the qualification you need to be a Melchizedek type priest? Where he says the qualification is, like Melchizedek, you've got to live forever. That means it's a bit tricky for you and me. Most of us, I mean, most of us don't fit either priesthood, right? You're not from the tribe of Levi, but and you know, but Jesus, he says, have a look at what he says in verse 15 and 16 there. Verse 16 he says. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Jesus has been raised from the dead to eternal life, eternal, immortal, incorruptible life. Because Jesus has been raised like that, he's the reality that Melchizedek is just a shadow of. He has this indestructible life. That's what makes him a priest in Melchizedek's line. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought much about the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. But the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is much more than just a cool miracle. Much more than just a party trick that God did to impress people. The resurrection of Jesus is more than just the proof that Jesus is the one who is the Christ. Though it is that. It's more than just the proof that Jesus is the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. Though it is that. It's more than just the resurrection life that you get to share in if you have faith in Jesus. Though it is that too. It's also the proof that he is the priest that you really need. Now how does that work? How is he the priest that I really need? Well... The writers of the Hebrews have been saying to these, these Christians, don't go back to that old Jewish priesthood. Don't go back to the temple in Jerusalem. Because that, the reality is here in Jesus. Don't let go of Jesus. What's, how's it work for you and me, though? You're probably not in danger of doing that. Well, let me tell you why I think it matters for us. What this means, that Jesus is alive, that he is our priest, means that he intercedes for you with his heavenly Father every day. Every day he intercedes for you. Have a look with me 
at chapter 7, verses 25, 26. Sorry, 23 to 25. And we'll finish with this. The writer to the Hebrew says, Now there have been many of those priests, those earthly priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So I have what is probably a very lame illustration, but I'm going to run with it anyway. Um, Imagine you could make a a bike, a push bike, out of origami. You're just very good at origami, right? You can make a full-size... Full-size adult bike out of origami. You make it out of paper, you can all paper you need, you make your bike, woohoo! There's this bike. I say, cool, I'm gonna get on this bike, and I'm gonna ride it to Melbourne. And I jump on the bike, and you're very good at that origami. Astoundingly, it holds my weight. And I'll start pedaling. How far do you reckon your paper origami bike is gonna get me on my way to Melbourne? A metre? Maybe a metre before it just crushes under my weight, that's alright, because look, there's many of you, we're all making origami bikes. You make many, many origami bikes, and I say, yes, I'm going to ride to the Melbourne on origami bikes. <laughs> and I go, and I get on, and I get a meter, crushes, quick, in the next one, I get on, and you made a really good bike, it got me three meters before, whoop, crush, quick, give me the next one, I get on that one, crush, straight away, okay, that one's so good, get that one. Right, I, how many origami bikes am I going to need to get to Melbourne? Lots. Right? Those Oregon bikes are the Old Testament priests. <laughs> because you need, you need a priest, you need a priest to intercede with you before the one true living God. Because he's more holy than you can imagine and you're more simple than you remember. You need a priest to represent you each time that you fail, each time you sin. But they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So there had to be another one replacing, and then replacing. And so yes, one high priest comes in, and guess what? They're having to serve for ten years, and then they die because they get sick, they get a disease, they get old, they get run over by a camel, whatever it is, they die. <laughs> so the next high priest comes in, thirty years, thirty years of high priest, amazing, he dies. Next one comes in, dies seven months. Next one comes. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. And you see, that was part of the weakness of that Old Testament system. What you need is a priest who can intercede for you forever. Jesus is the priest you need. By the power of an indestructible life, he's been made priest forever. And so what he does, he has made his sacrifice when he died on the cross. And each and every day, he stands in front of his Father and he intercedes for you on the basis of his once-for-all-time death. He applies the benefits of his death to you. His blood applied to you. So I don't know, if you're a a Christian person, if you've been following Jesus, I don't know what sin goes on in your life. I don't know what sin you might do today, what you might do in a year's time, what you might do in 10 years, but whatever it is, you have a priest. You need a priest. And you have a priest. Jesus is the priest you need because he can intercede with the one true living God to save you completely, save you forever. And then next week what we'll do is we'll look at what was the, the act, the act that Jesus did 
that he is now able to apply to you on a day-by-day basis. So hold on to Jesus. He's the priest you need. 